faster than a speeding bullet. More powerful than a locomotive. Able to leap tall buildings of a single bound. This amazing stranger, the man of steel. Who are you? A friend. Look, up in the sky, it's a bird. It's a plane. It's, it's... Superman. 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 This looks like a job for Superman. Superman Forever Radio, the weekly podcast devoted to the Man of Steel. Welcome one and all to Superman Forever Radio, episode 37. I'm Superman's pal, J. David Weeder. As you may have seen on Facebook, I've moved to Friday to post new episodes. And the reasoning is pretty simple. I adjusted my recording, editing, podcasting, producing schedule back to the way it was in the early days. So recording takes place much earlier in the week now, and it made sense to start the weekend with an episode rather than record it and wait all the way till Sunday to post it. And it keeps my weekend that much more free to do, you know, some free time and keeps me, you know, acceptable, accountable to stay on my schedule. So from here on in, I'll be posting the episodes on Friday, and, you know, really that's all I have. We do have quite a lot of stuff to do this week in looking at the Superman books from November of 2007. As a side note, both episodes 38 and 39 will be December 2007 books, because there were some extra things that came out that month, so it's a very full month, and it actually will take up two full episodes. And then, folks, we would have gone through our first full year in the New Earth era, and plus the bulk of 2006... And then after that, we still have two years and eight months worth of books, plus some mini-series here and there, and uh, else, one else worlds. And then we'll reach the end of the New Earth era, and the cusp of the, of the new DCU that will be coming this, this September. Now, fear not. I want to be clear. Once we hit that point, the show isn't ending. It's not, oh, we're done with the New Earth era. No. We, and then done. No. I, I am working on quite a few things for that point that I think you're really going to like. And I mean a lot and it's something I'm really excited about. So fear not, we've got quite a while to go on this era and then we've got something different planned for after that, but that's quite a ways away. So for now, let's play a quick podcast promo, then jump right into the Superman books for November, 2007 and take a good look at the family dynamics surrounding dark side before finishing out the two part Superman, the animated series episode, the main man. So, let us get this show started. You are cordially invited to attend a podcast that observes the unfolding events of history. Come with me and observe the birth and growth of a legend. From the pages of a 10-cent pulp comic book to the newspapers radio program adventures, theatrical films, and more. Witness the dawn of the superhero. Golden Age Superman. Available on iTunes and at goldenagesuperman.libsyn.com. Every legend 
has a beginning. And kicking off the Superman books for November 2007 this week is Action Comics number 856, which was cover dated, of course, November 2007, but went on sale September 26, 2007. This is Escape from Bizarro World, Chapter 2, written by Jeff Johns and Richard Donner. Artist was Eric Powell, with letters by Rob Lay and colors by Dave Stewart. This was reprinted in Escape from Bizarro World, uh, the hardcover and trade paperback, which you can find on Amazon.com. And it begins in Metropolis three months ago. A little girl plays on the balcony of her high-rise apartment, throwing flowers down to the street below, when, from behind her, she hears a voice quietly say, Pretty. The girl turns to see Bizarro standing behind her, and inspired by the little girl's game, he hoists her up, throws her off the balcony, ordering her to fly. The girl drops straight down, where she is caught in the nick of time by Superman, who tells the little girl that the dress she is wearing is a very pretty one. Irked that Superman ruined his game, Bizarro leaps to the ground and throws a whole cart of flowers into the air, enjoying the way they flutter down, and then he sets his eyes on a school bus full of children. But Superman lands between Bizarro and his prey, and admonishes the duplicate for almost killing the little girl. Superman explains that the girl and the kids on the bus, they can't fly like Bizarro and himself. Now, Bizarro reasons that this means that he and Superman are the same, but Superman insists that they are not the same. Dejected, Bizarro flies away into the lonely void of space and looks down at the Earth, picturing a cube planet. So with that inspiration, Bizarro gathers meteorites and floating fragments throughout space and begins smashing them together essentially making a planet that revolves around a blue sun. And as Bizarro puts the finishing touches on the daily planet building, he laments that he doesn't see Jimmy or Lois. And just then, as if on cue, his eyes flare up and it's a blue stream. And when Bizarro covers them with his hands, they begin to bubble up and a Bizarro Lois springs from his body, screaming horrifically. Which shoots us ahead to the current moment. Picking up roughly right after we left off in Action 855, a crowd of angry Bizarro world citizens stand around with torches, trying to decide what to do about Bizarro and the horror of Superman. Bizarro Lex Luthor has a plan, and it's very clear that Lex Luthor wants to do is kill Bizarro. So clearly, this idea has never occurred to anybody else on the planet, but how do they kill Bizarro? Well, no fear. Luthor has that covered, too, with his secret weapon hidden inside a large wooden crate. Now, switching scenes to Bizarro's lava-laden Fortress of Solitude, Superman is held captive by four Bizarros, while Bizarro No. 1 tries to get some knowledge from Jonathan Kent, who is trapped within a crystalline prison. Jonathan tries to reason with Bizarro, explaining that he is not the creature's father, but Bizarro seems unwilling to believe this. Superman whimpers, Paw, which sets Bizarro off, leading him to berate Superman for ruining Bizarro's secret identity, ruining his chance for a life on Bizarro World, and once Bizarro World is destroyed, they will both be alone. So Superman blasts Bizarro in the face with heat vision, but the Man of Steel is outnumbered 5 to 1, so he's quickly overpowered and thrown into right up against the Crystal Prison, cracking it a little. Bizarro and his troops decide to lock Superman up in the Fortress Prison, which does have Bizarro versions of Toy Man and Mixus Pitalik. And just as Superman is about to be locked away, the Fortress rumbles and quakes. And back in Bizarro Metropolis, Luthor looks at his open crate and simply says, Hello, which I'm assuming translates to goodbye. And with that, Bizarro Doomsday crashes through the fortress wall and proceeds to jack up the four extraneous Bizarros in a violent, bloody attack. 
One Bizarro is ripped in half. Another has his head literally burst like a balloon. And yet another is smashed against the ceiling. Bizarro number one steps up and takes on Bizarro Doomsday as Superman rushes to his paw, smashing the crystal in prison and getting he and his dad back to the surface of the planet. And once the two are free, Superman feels the odd effects of the blue sun, and Superman tells Pa Kent he has to get the two of them off this planet, but Pa asks, aren't you going to help them, son? And Superman simply replies, I'm not even sure they're alive, Pa. As the conversation is happening, Bizarro, Lex Luthor, and the entire crowd of Bizarros arrive, having found their Bizarro Bizarro. To add to that, Bizarro himself lands near the two, with Bizarro telling Pa that he is sorry, And, of course, this means that following closely behind Bizarro is Bizarro Doomsday, growling and charging. So Superman decides that he has had enough of this place and gets ready to go toe-to-toe with a twisted version of his own killer. Bizarro Doomsday rears back and the battle begins, only to be abruptly ended, when a rusty, misshapen metal pod drops from the sky right on top of Bizarro Doomsday. Superman, Pa, Bizarro, and the entire citizenship of Bizarro World are all shocked to see the pod open, and out walks bizarro versions of Flash, Green Lantern, Wonder Woman, Hawkman, and Batman. And with that, the issue ends with the promise that the next issue will be the death of Bizarro. Now, this issue took a twisted turn. I mean, really twisted and not in the fun Bizarro way. The first thing that bugged me was that we pretty much wrapped up last issue with a flashback from out of nowhere, looking at Clark Kent's childhood. Then we open this issue with a flashback that sets up the entire storyline. Now, usually I don't mind telling a story out of sequence. In fact, I like it when it's done right. But it feels like the story would have been linked better from the last time we actually saw Bizarro in the penultimate chapter of Last Sun to where we pick up in Action 855 by being told chronologically. The next thing that bugs me is the myriad of Frankenstein references right from the first page. We get it. Bizarro is a Frankenstein analog. We don't need that sealed with the scene in which Bizarro literally reenacts a scene from the movie. We also don't need the terrified reaction of Bizarro Lois to her creation. Got the Frankenstein reference. Thanks, Jeff and Richard. And one of the oddest things is we don't really progress very very far in the story with this issue. We had a little exposition, but when I got to the end of the issue, I was dumbfounded as to where the rest of the issue went. And Superman and Pa got free when Bizarro Doomsday attacked, and then the Bizarro Justice League shows up. That's really all that happened to move the story forward. This felt like it could have been the first half of a good issue, but not very substantial on its own. It grazes a little bit with depth when Superman talks about the fact that he and Bizarro aren't the same, but if this could have been expanded a bit, we could have actually seen a good ideological face-off between these two enemies. Instead, we get an awkward flashback out of sequence... In a bad way, we get a very faint, unsubstantial look at Bizarro's loneliness in space, but we don't dig much deeper than a few quick panels. And you know what? Eric Powell's art seems to slip a little, too. The the flashbacks, they seem to be crisp, and they sell the story, but it comes off a little too cartoony later on. And the issue, ultimately, it felt like it was stretched out way too much without enough story or time devoted to it. There were a lot of good plot points, there were a lot of good ideas on the page, but nobody went down the road to actually explore those. So it's basically the middle child of this storyline. And it's not given the proper attention. And one more thing that bothers me is, as Superman is getting away, 
he, and this this kind of uh, bothers me a little less now, but once I put a little bit of thought behind it, but he says, we got to get out of here, leave these bizarros to fend for themselves, and his pa, of course, is saying, well, we got to help them. And Superman says, well, I'm not sure they're alive. Well, you know what? In this very book, in Action Comics, we had a storyline with the auctioneer in which a sentient computer was considered alive by Superman, so he couldn't kill it. Hmm. What does it take to uh, fit Superman's definition of alive, Jeff Johns? I'm a little confused. I'm a little perplexed here. Because the Superman I know would have helped them just on general principle. Now, as I mentioned, it bothers me a little less now. Because Superman's priority is getting the kidnapped Pa Kent away. And I don't know that... In in this situation, there's a safe place on the planet to, you know, kind of stash Paul while that happens. So, I get where his concern is, I get where his focus is, but Superman would have found a way to kind of stave this off and try to make the world a better place. But I think this this beat really bothers me a little bit because it's another way to stretch out a story that could have been two issues, maybe even one issue, or one, you know, nice... Uh, a prestige format uh, one shot, you know, extra sized. But it bothered me because that goes against the ideology. But there are some extenuating circumstances, and as we're going to see, it plays out a little bit differently. And as I mentioned, this is the middle child of the storyline. And with that, I give Action Comics 856 a very disappointing rating of Wait for the Trade. Not a bad issue, but really, really weak in terms of its infrastructure. Just didn't quite pan out. But, moving on, next up is the last regular issue of Camelot Falls before it wraps up along with Last Sun in a pair of annuals which we'll be covering several episodes later, uh, both together. So, let's take a look at Superman number 667. And this issue is titled Tide and Torrent. It came out on September 12, 2007. Written by Kurt Busiek, penciled by Carlos Pacheco, inked by Jesus Marino, Lettered by Richard Starkings, colored by Alex Sinclair, edited by Matt Idelson, with assistant editor Nachi Castro, Superman created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster, and this issue was reprinted in Superman Camelot Falls Volume 2, which came out in hardcover and trade. And the issue opens with Superman flying across the North Atlantic, followed by floating cameras, watching his every move and sending it all to television sets around the world as the Man of Steel searches for the sorcerer Arion. The news commentators don't know why Superman's face is so battered, or why his costume is so muddy, and Superman thinks to himself that he would like to explain it to those watching if there was time. Instead, Superman dives into the water, and we flashback to two weeks ago, in Metropolis. In the flashback, Superman and Zatanna take on some goopy tentacle creatures that seem to be regenerating every time the pair strike. And they're even impervious to Zatanna's powerful brand of magic, as if whoever is controlling them is drawing from nearly unlimited energies. And on cue, Iron's astral head appears and reminds Superman and Z that this is what he has been trying to beat into their heads for weeks, that by fighting the oncoming darkness, they give it strength. Superman refuses to believe this and turns it around on Arion, saying that Arion himself is making it worse, all in the name of proving some stupid prophecy. And Arion vanishes just as quickly as he appeared, and Zatanna directs Superman's attention to the tentacle creatures, who appear to be regenerating again. But Zatanna shows Superman what is beyond the electromagnetic spectrum, 
to the umbilicals which form a sort of spiritual feeding tube for the monsters from the shadows beyond our world. Superman decides that some heat vision should cut the cords, and Zatanna warns him not to do that because these things have human hosts and the shock could kill them. So Zatanna goes on to explain that they need cold iron, which Superman provides from some buried pipe on the ground, and super, in the ground, I should say. And so Zatanna orders the Man of Tomorrow to put the iron into the rift, grounding the magics and releasing the human hosts. And that's when the Phantom Stranger shows up, which is always a bad sign. But this time the Stranger's just giving a status update that he's been looking for Arion as well. And, of course, with a, a millennium of experience, Arion knows how to hide himself magically, but the Stranger isn't done looking for him yet. But he does confirm that Arion is what, what he's saying is correct. There has been some sort of dark energy building up around the world for years, and while the Stranger does not know why the darkness gathers, he does know Arion didn't create it. However... He did really unleash it. And that is when all hell breaks loose on Earth. Earthquakes, tidal waves, lightning storms, volcanic eruptions all over the world, tearing things up and keeping Superman very, very busy. Now, instead of turning the governments against Superman, the UN actually gives him their full support. There's a great public outcry supporting Superman, people holding signs wearing his symbol on their t-shirts. It's a warm and fuzzy moment. But at LexCorp, Lana is looking over some of the research and development projects, deciding which ones turn a profit and which ones just bite the dust. Because, you know, LexCorp's in some financial problems. And the current invention on, on the table in front of her is the Scram-Cram. Floating, self-propelled cameras beaming digital feeds back to the base. Just for, you know, public airing. And it's right on the verge of field testing, so Lana decides to use the cameras to follow Superman's search for Arion and then offer the feed for free to any interested news outlets since WLEX was sold two weeks ago and they don't have any media interests. Meanwhile, Superman floats over the ruined city of Maku Piku, wondering if this is his eventual result in terms of the cities of Earth, Metropolis, New York, things like that. And that's when Subject 17 arrives, claiming that he knows where Arion is, but won't tell Superman because Superman hurt Subject 17 when they fought way back in the day. At least it feels like it. Subject 17 is not interested in saving the human race, because the way he sees it, they deserve what's coming to them, because of how he was treated in the lab. I mean, they never even gave him a name. So, Subject 17 tells Superman to stand against humanity alongside him, which Superman refuses. So the two battle, throwing punches in the rain, with Subject 17 taunting Superman as the human's puppet. And then Subject 17 is even angrier because Superman chose the humans over him, and he saw the potential for the two to be brothers. He saw a kindred spirit. And this really pushes Superman's button, and he begins to beat the ever-loving snot out of Subject 17 until the monster, face down in the mud, yields to the Man of Steel. And Superman offers to take a very injured Subject 17 to Star Labs, uh, to treat him for his internal injuries, but Subject 17 refuses, saying no more labs. And probably not the best suggestion. <laughs> and Superman tries to help Subject 17, he talks to him, but the creature tells Superman that he will be back, and then vanishes. Having beamed the location of Arion right into Superman's head. And with that, we return to where the story opened, with Superman diving into the North Atlantic, the location that was beamed into his head, where Superman finds an ancient Atlantean outpost. Superman creates a whirlpool two miles deep, 
which kind of brings the, the outpost up to the open air, basically making a wall around it, and tells Arion that while the towers are protected from his power, the current moves it a bit, and then steps out of the whirlpool, letting the full fury of the Atlantic Ocean come down on the Citadel and the Scram Crams, and now it is time for the final battle, which we will cover several episodes from now when we look at the 2008 Superman Annual. For a, super line, a Superman storyline that's been on again, off again, you know what? This issue really kicked things into high gear, and it feels like this could have been done earlier. But the the action was brisk. The flashback wasn't as confusing or convoluted as that, the action issue we just covered. In fact, in a lot of ways, this issue was quite the opposite of Action 856. A lot happened, and it happened fast. We got a confirmation that the darkness is indeed coming. Um, we have a, a driven Superman seeking out Ariane rather than reflectively pondering his place in the world. We had a good guest appearance from both Zatanna and the Phantom Stranger as opposed to last issue's awkward cameos. And ultimately, the story leapt ahead several bounds. And I'm convinced that Camelot Falls suffered a lot for being aimed for the trade. And then we saw the schedule get decimated. But what could have been done in maybe a half, a handful of issues, half as much time, was done in a many with a lot of off-topic stopovers. And even this very issue, the solicited, uh, you know, the solicit for Superman 668 shows the conclusion, which doesn't happen in the main books. Now, I'm going to save my full reflection of the Camelot Falls as a whole until episode, you know, where we cover the uh, annuals. So before I get on that tangent, let me get right to my point. This issue was at the pace the storyline should have been at the whole time. The issue moved fluidly. It has exposition points embedded within it seamlessly, rather than coming to a full stop to solidify its point with talking heads around sitting around a restaurant table. The proverbial shadow loomed over the issue, but didn't overpower it. As we get to the final act, callbacks are made to the beginning with Superman's showdown with Subject 17. It all begins to come together, except one important element. What happened to Callie Llewellyn? What was the point to bring her into the fray? I mean, there was a big setup, almost like a love triangle, and then you know the woman had a pass with Clark, she's calling out for help with him, and then poof she's gone and she's never even mentioned again ever it's an odd bit of storytelling i mean it definitely makes her more of a macguffin than an actual full-fledged character it's just different and she could have been really interesting as a sad thing she could have been a nice counterpoint to lex luthor since they're both you know bald but in 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 terms of art pacheco did kick it back into high gear his art is detailed but not oversaturated and Alex Sinclair on colors lets a little Dave Stewart in with the earth tones, but instead he kind of goes with a little bit more vivid, sharper colors throughout the issue. And the fight sequence between Subject 17 and Superman stands out uh, in the latter half of the book. The whirlpool sequence is also very, very breathtaking, very cool looking. And it's nice to see Superman using his noggin again to really just, you know, do what he does. I think Superman's powers only work when he has the creativity and the insight to really bring them to their full effectiveness. And all of this without sacrificing on character work, or the storytelling. This was an effective, well-paced, well-drawn issue. Everything kind of came together and made the penultimate chapter of Camelot Falls worth reading. 
So I'm going to give Superman 667 a rating of pull list, which is a huge leap up from last week's rating of leave it on the shelf for Superman 666, which, folks, I'm going to be honest, it still bothers me. That issue still bothers the heck out of me. Uh, you know, even after I wrapped that episode, I kept thinking and, and talking with some coworkers, and this is like, uh, just why why do we have to go out of the way to make Superman look like a jerk? Anyway, <laughs> I'm getting off on a tangent. I look forward to wrapping up Camelot Falls, but I have to say, in real time, this issue amped me up for 668, only to punch me in the face when the book took a different direction. Now, it's a lot like the crypto story we kept seeing solicited over and over again, which I always thought we would never, ever see, and yet, just a few weeks ago, I picked it up from my local comic shop. Now, a little leery about commenting on why that issue was perhaps solicited rather than what was originally planned, but suffice it to say, I, I don't necessarily support the mentality behind it, but I don't have the full story. So I'm going to abstain and just say, we got the crypto issue, let's be happy. So, a couple of episodes from now, uh, we should go through December, I, th I believe we start on January, and then I'll do the two annuals, and we'll take a look at the two storylines, both Camelot Falls and Last Sun as a whole, and kind of decide, you know, was it really worth the investment? So prepare for that, and speaking of preparing... Over the next uh, few episodes, our comics are going to have the presence of the new gods very noticeably. So I thought it would be really appropriate to take a, an extended look at them. Now this week we begin that by looking at the main enemy of the new guard, new guards, new gods, Darkseid, who has been a guest on this show, as you well know. But I want to look at him and his family dynamic, and it's it's. I'm just going to be honest. It's a twisted, twisted tale. So Darkseid himself was created by Jack Kirby, first appeared in Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen number 134 in 1970. Now his main goal was finding the anti-life equation, essentially a mathematical equation which would remove free will from the universe by tapping into the great depths of hopelessness that existed within all creatures. And when the old gods died, two new races were born to take their place. The inhabitants of the nearly utopian planet of New Genesis and those of the hellish, perpetually burning planet of Apocalypse. Now, Darkseid was born on Apocalypse as Uxus, son of King Uga Khan and Queen Hegra. Uxus was second in line to the throne behind his brother Drax. But when Drax sought and found the Omega Force, Uxus killed him, claimed it for himself, and that turned his body's tissues into the rocky formation that we all know, sort of a mineral. Now, Uxus took the name Darkseid and basically waged a battle between he and his mother for rule of Apocalypse. I mean, the scheming between Darkseid and Hegra went so far that Darkseid married a sorceress against his mother's wishes, and Hegra had her killed at the hands of the torture master Dasad. But, before her death, Darkseid's wife, the sorceress Suli, bore him a son, Calabac. Despite killing his wife, Darkseid used Dasad as an accomplice in killing Hegra, and Darkseid was forced to remarry. See, tensions between Apocalypse and Eugenesis were always heated, always right on the edge, but there had been a tradition known as the Pact. Now, the Pact involved a son from Eugenesis being exchanged for a son from Apocalypse. So Darkseid gave his son Orion, the second son, to Highfather, leader of Eugenesis, and in turn, Scott Free, also known as Mr. Miracle, 
was given to Darkseid to raise. If this family dynamic wasn't messed up enough, there was one more stitch. Drax, Darkseid's brother, who was seemingly killed, had actually been shot through a dimensional barrier where the warrior Astor nursed Drax back to health. And when Astor died, Drax became Infinity Man, protector of the Forever People, who were able to summon him when in great peril. Think Captain Planet. I mean, seriously, they actually called him like Captain Planet. We put the hands together on the mother box and poof, there he was to take care of business. Yeah. And Calabac grew to be seven feet tall, with over a ton of muscle, which made his hide thick and invulnerable. And he acted as his father's second-in-command, and he's basically a legendary warrior on Apocalypse. But his father punishes his failures by killing him repeatedly and then resurrecting Calabac. The theory is that Calabac is the son of the one person Darkseid ever loved. And that's why he's constantly a little bit gentler on him than most of the other people that would fail Darkseid. In turn, Calabac really seeks to be loved and approved by his father, which is a long shot since Darkseid's pretty cold-hearted. And Calabac also hates his half-brother, Orion. Orion, what is wrong with me? Orion. Orion was an angry, angry young man who grew up on New Genesis. Now, he was, you know, soothed a little bit when his mother box, that sentient computer, which we're going to look at a lot more next week. Mother box is an important aspect of that. But his mother box soothed him by disguising his beastly appearance into that of a handsome man. I'm raised by the High Father. Orion was given and trained on all manner of combat, but preferred the weaponry of his astral harness. Orion was the only person capable of tapping into the astral force, sort of the opposite number to the Omega Force, which Darkseid uses. Orion was able to use his teleport to uh, use this to teleport from place to place and fire energy blasts channeled through the wristbands that he wore. As I mentioned, Orion's appearance is generated by the Mother Box, which is ironic, since Orion would marry a girl named Becca, who we're going to talk about in Superman Batman just on the other side of this promo. Becca's father, Hyman, invented the Mother Box, and Orion was able to do what his father couldn't. He found the anti-life equation. He subsequently took over Apocalypse and tried to use the equation to bring about the galactic peace by removing free will, until he saw the error of his ways and snapped back to normal. Now later he found out that his doppelganger in the baby switching trade, Scott Free, had the equation and consciously did not use it. So Scott was handed to Granny Goodness once Darkseid was traded. And the trade, you know, took place pretty quickly, so Scott uh, received quite a bit of focused torture in Granny Goodness's terror orphanage. But Scott did meet his future wife, Barda, while in the orphanage, as she was training to become a Fury, one of Granny and Darkseid's female fighting force. And Scott was eventually able to escape using the Mother Box to get to Earth, where he met the first Mr. Miracle, Thaddeus Brown, a circus escape artist. And when Brown died, Scott took over the role of Mr. Miracle and performed as the world's greatest escape artist, with fellow apocalyptic Shiloh Norman as his assistant, along with Thaddeus Brown's assistant, the dwarf known as Oberon. And Darkseid kept Scott's escape secret because that meant he would be in violation of the pact. But he hunted Mr. Miracle, who eventually just got sick of running, went back to Apocalypse to face trial by combat, and won his freedom legally. 
And Darkseid has constantly tried to turn Superman into the champion of Apocalypse, each time with no real success. Darkseid has also come into conflict with Orion and Mr. Miracle multiple times as he sought out the anti-life equation. Now, that's a very basic overview of Darkseid and his sons. Next week, we're going to look at the more macro universe of the fourth world. And why I include Darkseid, Orion, Calabac, characters from the fourth world in my Superman collection, rather than in the DC universe proper. So for the moment, we're going to take a break, play a promo... And then we'll come back, take a look at an issue of Superman Batman, which does deal with Darkseid, Desaad, and the Fourth World, including by another, and pardon me, including another attempt by Darkseid to use Superman to further his own evil machinations. So consider this topic open for right now, because we're coming back again to look at it next week, and I will be right back after this short promo. The Superman Fan Podcast is turning over a new leaf for 2011. With the growth of Superman Podcasts in 2010 covering the Golden Age of Superman, the Bronze Age Superman, the post-crisis Superman, as well as current Superman stories, I noticed that there was not a podcast which covered the Silver Age of Superman stories. And since I began reading comic books in the early to mid-1960s, right in the middle of the Silver Age, I decided it would be a perfect opportunity for me to cover the Silver Age of Superman stories. One week I will cover the Superman family of titles, Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen, World's Finest Comics, and eventually Superman's girlfriend Lois Lane. The next week I will cover the Man of Steel's titles of Superman and Action Comics, as well as the Supergirl stories. And I will alternate episodes in this fashion through 1970 when Mark Weisinger retired. The home website is at supermanfanpodcast.mypodcast.com and expanded show notes are at supermanfanpodcast.blogspot.com. Your emails are welcome at supermanfanpodcast at gmail.com and I look forward to reading them. The Superman Fan Podcast is a member of the Superman Podcast Network which you can find at www.fortressofbailey2.com slash supermanpodcastnetwork, where you can find all of the podcasts covering every era of the Man of Steel. Episodes are also available on iTunes. So join me each week as we fly through the time barrier and journey through the Silver Age adventures of Superman. All right, let's get right back into the rest of the books for November of 2007. Up next is Superman Batman number 40, which went on sale September 19th, 2007. It was written by Alan Burnett, penciled by Dustin Gein, inked by Eric Friedhoffs, lettered by Rob Lay, colored by Randy Mayer, edited by Eddie Braganza with assistant editor Adam Schlagman. Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. Batman was created by Bob Kane and Bill Finger. And this issue is Trapped, which is part of the Torment storyline, reprinted in Superman Batman Torment, both hardcover and trade paperback. And the issue drops us right back into where we left off in Superman Batman number 39, with a very injured Batman facing down a Superman who is mind-controlled by Darkseid and his crony Dysod on the planet Tartaros. One quick note. Last episode, I incorrectly identified this planet as Warworld, which is not the case. 
Sorry, it wasn't named, and I called it like I saw it, and I was wrong. It does happen. But, just as Superman is about to finish Batman off, the Man of Steel gets hit by some kind of energy bolt, and an invisible figure tells Batman to hold still as they phase him out, and Batman becomes invisible. Superman comes back to look for Batman, coming so close that his red cape practically brushes Batman's cheek. But, not seeing anyone, Superman flies off into the night, and Batman finally loses consciousness. And when he wakes up, Bruce Wayne finds himself alive in one of the deep underground laboratories of the planet that once belonged to the scientist Hyman, who we just talked about. Batman is buck naked in a stasis bed, which is healing him, as Becca, daughter of Hyman, wife of Orion, explains that the planet is fitted from, it was retrofitted from a heavenly body, just a normal planet, into a battleship, and at that moment, the planet is near the source wall. Bruce thinks about how restorative Becca's touch is, and she tells him her name, and Batman immediately knows that he is Orion's wife, and she adds that Orion isn't there to help, won't be there to help, because Darkseid is placed a shield around the planet to block boom tubes in or out. And Becca leaves to get some weapons, and Bruce is sorry to see her go, and not just for the information she is giving to him. As Becca picks out some weapons, she herself goes over the internal conflict in her head as Batman reminds her very much of Orion, who continuously abandons her to adventure around the galaxy. She thinks of leaving Batman to fend for himself, but finds that she just can't, and returns the Dark Knight's suit to him, and they go for the surface, both secretly lusting after one another like it's an episode of Degrassi. Eventually, Batman snaps and grabs Becca by the shoulders and demands to know how to help Clark and to get clarification on exactly what is going on. Becca explains that Superman can't be salvaged, because Superman uh, basically, is his mind is wiped, there's nothing to go back to, and Darkseid needs Superman to save himself. And it was a year ago that Darkseid was placed in the source wall by Superman, and then once removed, he returned, and he did nothing to salvage his tarnished reputation, because Darkseid could no longer use the Omega Force. The source wall had apparently drained it. Now, this fact was discovered by Desaad, and also the High Father's staff was discovered by him, stuck inside the source wall. This is an artifact supposedly made from the source wall itself, and makes the bearer invincible. Having found it following the High Father's death, Desaad proposed to retrieve the staff to gain Darkseid's power back, and use Superman to do it, since the staff could destroy a person who, you know, simply touched it. As Becca finishes her story, Batman places his hand on her shoulder, Becca recoils, and the Dark Knight uh, kind of creates an awkward moment. She tells him, the less they interact, the better. Then she takes the lead again, and the two continue towards the surface of Tartaros. Back at Darkseid's base, Desaad beats up on the Scarecrow, berating him for leading Batman right to the planet. But Scarecrow doesn't prove to be much of a match, and Desaad is able to strap Crane down, and then seeks a sharp-toothed creature known as Clot on Crane. Desaad assures uh, Crane that Clot's bites won't kill him, not the first round, because it's the scabs that follow that the creature really wants. Darkseid walks in on this and is ticked that Batman made it to the planet, and the parademons can't find him, but his mother box is still there, so he couldn't have left. And while Darkseid conjectures that perhaps Superman destroyed the Dark Knight and burned him to ashes, Darkseid knows Batman may be more clever than himself or his entire army, and so it's time to send Superman now. Meanwhile, Batman and Becca make it to the surface of the planet and make some googly eyes at each other before parademons show up and chase them. 
Becca tells Batman to hold her so they can phase out, and the two get good and close and become invisible. So there they are, surrounded by parademons, invisible, and Batman thinks to himself that there is nowhere else that he would rather be but on Darkseid's hell on Earth, with death and destruction everywhere, all because of Becca. And he doesn't care that she's married. His beautiful Becca. What the... Half this issue... No, you know what? Almost three quarters of this issue is Batman and Becca looking longingly at each other, steeped in more sexual tension than a Mulder and Scully shower scene. Look, I get that Batman really, really likes women. I get this. But three quarters of an issue devoted to Batman chasing a married woman while on a hostile alien world, while Superman is being mind-controlled by Darkseid? Priorities seem way off here, people. You remember how I told you that Batman, Superman, this book, it should be epic? That it's the world's two biggest hitters going against an A-list bad guy, especially in this story? It didn't happen here. Darkseid and Superman barely appear in this issue, which would be fine if Batman was doing something more than scoping out Becca. On top of that, we get a second straight issue where the main brunt of the story is exposition in the form of a flashback. A lot of this awkwardness could have been alleviated if the information hadn't been held so close to the chest the whole time. You really, and, then, and then they release it in huge chunks mid-issue, sometimes bringing the story to a full halt to do so. So Becca comes practically out of nowhere, Batman has never seen her, and suddenly the world's greatest detective, this mind, capable of more reason, logic, and discipline than almost anyone else's on Earth, suddenly goes gaga over her. Sorry, no, that, that doesn't fly. If I wanted to read Archie comics, guess where my money would have went. Beyond the striking cover, which features a solemn Batman posing behind Becca with her guns in the air, reflecting Superman's shield, Gin's art falls pretty flat for most of the issue. Once again, we do get a splash page that is mind-blowing at the expense of uh, the character and background work throughout. It's very, very inconsistent, and that really irks me. That's one of my pet peeves. If you're an artist, make the work good throughout the issue. Don't save your A-game for those grandstanding moments. And this issue causes the storyline as a whole to fall flat. So therefore, I give Superman Batman number 40 a rating of quarter bin. Don't seek it out on its own, but if you do come across it while in the quarter bin, it isn't a complete waste of 25 cents. Well, not a complete waste. Anyway, let's, let's wrap up November by taking a look at a returning book. One we haven't seen in a while, Superman Confidential. And this is issue number six. Um, went on sale July 11, 2007, so it's a bit of an anomaly. Um, it came out much earlier than the other books, but the cover date did say November. There's a good reason for that. This issue is Welcome to Murtropolis, written by Justin Gray and Jimmy Palmiotti, penciled by Coy Turnbull, inked by Sandra Hope, lettered by Phil Balsman, Colored by J.D. Smith, edited by Mike Martz, with associated editor Mike Martz. Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster, and this issue, as of yet, has not been collected. Notice that we <laughs> this issue is not Kryptonite Part 6. In fact, this comic as a whole has been missing for months. But it's back, and it opens up off the coast of Palmyra Island, just north of the equator, Lori Lomaris, Superman's mermaid ex-girlfriend, is diving through a shipwreck deep underwater, scoping out the treasure. She resurfaces and gets back on her schooner with a single medallion in hand and video chats with Adam, her contact with the Metropolis Museum. Lori tells Adam that the treasure is stolen ink and gold, 
but she can't translate the inscriptions. She does know that the captain of the ship sank it intentionally to keep it from reaching the shore. Laurie tries to emulate it on and suddenly begins having a seizure, spouting an odd language and shooting lasers from her eyes. And with that, we, the, the issue shoots ahead three weeks later. Where Malik Luther looks over a metropolis where an incident of civil unrest is occurring. And oh yeah, metropolis is underwater, populated by mer people. Mer people. And Luther thinks to himself, I warned them that this could happen. He goes on about trusting Superman and why that's always going to bite humanity in the butt. Normal Lex Luthor stuff. And the Mer people's uprising is cut short when a blast of heat vision cuts through the water. Superman floats alongside Lori Lamaris and calls out, You will cease this violence immediately or face the wrath of King Superman. The citizens plead with Superman that this isn't who he is and that Lori has changed all of them. And Lori urges Superman to attack and the citizens flee, even as Superman decides that he just can't harm them. As Luther watches, he tells himself that, they, that he will stop all of this and stop Superman. And this scene switches to Stryker's Island. Well, is it really an island if everything's underwater? Can you have an underwater island? Okay, the scene switches to Stryker's Prison, where Mer Jimmy Olsen and Mer Lois Lane are trying to figure out why Lori has turned into such a witch and how she did this to Superman. And Lois hopes that when the city sank, it may have loosened the foundation on the bars, but no luck. And sadly, nobody knows they are there. Well, almost nobody. Lex Luthor knows that they are there, and he's ready to break them out of the prison. Meanwhile, Superman can't shake this feeling that he has, that something isn't right. Lori knew all of his secrets and kept them, but she married somebody else, and Superman can't stop thinking about Lois, which trips Lori's switch. And Lori blasts at him that he is not to use her name. She says, uh, you know, something odd. The way she says it, she says, we are your love now. Which Superman actually catches and thinks is odd, but he keeps hearing this noise in his head. And that noise is Jimmy's signal watch. In the LexCorp building, Luthor tells Jimmy Olsen to cut the umbilical cord and fend for himself. Because Luthor has compressed sonar guns that will incapacitate anything with ears. But the problem, as Lois points out, is that Lori is a telepath and will see them coming. Luther has prepared for that, too. He has neural inhibitors, which will scramble any incoming brain traffic. Luther plans on incapacitating Superman long enough to convince Lori Lamaris to return to Metropolis to normal by any means necessary. Outside the city, King Shark and a squad of his soldiers show up to take advantage of the humans and get some grub. Superman takes quick care of them, which keeps him momentarily distracted while Lois, Jimmy, and Lex raid Lori Lamaris' lair. The guards don't put up much of a fight, but the squid, uh, the giant squid does, and it holds them captive as Lori arrives and reminds Lois to face the facts, which Superman returns to. So now we've got an awkward standoff where Superman's walking in on Lori just telling him, telling him to let it go. This is the new status quo. Now, Superman isn't sure who these people are, and Luthor tells Superman that he's been brainwashed, but Lori insists that they are assassins. They are assassins. Superman kind of uh, recognizes Lois a little bit, but not that her pleading gets far, because Lex screams out that he has been trying to kill Superman for years, then plants a sloppy, wet kiss on Lois before snapping her neck. And the issue ends with Luthor asking a red-eyed Superman if that jogged any memories, as Lois slumps to the ground dead. What the... 
okay, it may be me, but this issue feels like I missed something. Did, did editorial drop an issue? I mean, out of nowhere with no real explanation, Metropolis is underwater and everyone is people. This was an abrupt stop on what's been a good tour with this book so far. We don't even get a decent setup for Lori Lamaris. Most people, if you don't know the Superman lore, wouldn't know who she is. I, I really struggled and struggled to find more things to talk about in this issue. It, but it was so vague, read so fast, and just didn't set anything up that I immediately forgot it once the book was closed. Now, the art, I, I, I don't know, it fell flat. It fell flat in a big way because the, character, the characters were awkwardly proportioned. Some of the details were really odd. Um, you would see, you know, in the scene where Lex Luthor slaps that kiss on Lois, one eye is awkwardly bigger than another, like he's Quasimodo. It just, I don't know, the issue was weird. It didn't give me enough to like or dislike. I mean, mostly this issue just vanished as soon as I read a page. It was just gone, and like something out of Memento, a Christopher Nolan movie, and it just, doing the people thing, it, it doesn't have the charm of the Silver Age, and doesn't use any of the storytelling of any period after that. So it just, reading it, I remain so indifferent. So I'm going to try to be as, as fair as I possibly can, and try to give an appropriate rating, so I'm going to go with leave it on the shelf. Honestly, it's it's that bad. Your your collection will be perfectly fine without this one. You're not really going to miss anything in that Superman confidential gap. And that's not to say the book was bad as a whole in terms of the title. I don't think this was a, a big contributor to the cancellation, or maybe I'm wrong. It's just the scheduling issues, and then we get this issue... It doesn't work. I'm sorry. Leave it on the shelf. Your collection is perfectly fine. But for right now, let's let's play another quick promo and then move on to Superman the Animated Series so we can forget that this issue ever happened. Hey everyone, my name is Michael Bailey. And I am Jeffrey Taylor. And we host a podcast called From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast. Presented by the Superman homepage. On the show... Wait, wait, wait. What? This just isn't working out for me. It's not bombastic enough. We need something epic. Like what? Welcome to From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, presented by the Superman homepage. I am Jeffrey Taylor. And I am Michael Bailey. From Crisis to Crisis chronicles the adventures of Superman. Wait, 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 wait. I'm just not feeling this. I'm just wondering how there's a needle scratching sound when all of this is clearly digital. Look, all we need to say is that this is the, a trailer 
for a show called From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast presented by the home, Superman homepage. My name is Michael Bailey. I am Jeffrey Taylor. And every week we give in-depth synopsis and reviews for just about every Superman book published between Man of Steel number one in 1986 and Adventures of Superman number 649 in 2006. We also talk about the related Superman media, what was happening in the rest of the world when these comics were published and what else was going on in the DC Universe. The show drops every Thursday-ish at the Superman homepage, which is located at www.supermanhomepage.com. From Crisis to Crisis is also a proud member of the Superman Podcast Network, located at www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. So join Jeffrey and I each week as we explore Superman during the post-crisis era, which includes Exile, Panic in the Sky, Doomsday, The Marriage, and Beyond. And write into the show at FromCrisisToCrisis at gmail.com and hear it read on the air, eventually, because we get behind on that sort of thing. Superman created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. Side effects from From Crisis to Crisis include loss of money from buying back issues, a desire to read 20-year-old comic books, nausea, drowsiness, pizza, blurred vision, upset stomach, a desire to kick puppies and kittens, and backache from lifting boxes of Superman comics. If the excitement of From Crisis to Crisis lasts more than four hours, seek immediate medical attention. Looking at Superman the Animated Series, Episode 10, The Main Man, Part 2, which originally aired on November 16, 2006 on the WB. Episode was written by Paul Dini, directed by Dan Reba. Of course, featured Tim Daly as Superman, Clark Kent, Dana Delaney as Lois Lane, Clancy Brown as Lex Luthor, Victor Brandt as Professor Hamilton, well, that was in Part 1, uh, Brad Garrett as Lobo, Sherman Howard, he of Lex Luthor, Superboy fame, as The Preserver, David L. Lander as Squeak, Don Harvey as Gnaw, Frank Welker as a Serpent, yes, that Frank Welker, Laura Cody as Alien Girls, and Richard Maul, Bull from Night Court, as Emperor Spooge. And picking up where we left off, the Preserver, a collector of creatures who are the last of their race, hired Lobo to hunt down Superman, being the last Kryptonian. Lobo had just delivered Superman to the Preserver, who put Superman in a cage that simulated a Kryptonian red sun when Lobo himself was captured. So we begin on a planet where Emperor Spooge is angry that Lobo didn't deliver Squeak to him as promised, and Spooge sends a group of bounty hunters, including Squeak's brother Gnaw, to track down the main man, spitting slime when he speaks. That part really bothered me a little bit. Almost like spitting slugs. And back on the Preserver's ship, Superman has his uniform returned and is told to adjust to his surroundings. In Lobo's cell, a pair of blue-skinned temptresses awaken Lobo, who gets angry when he realizes that he has been kidnapped. Lobo is subdued by the girls who sprout gas guns from their robotic mouths. And thinking Superman, uh, thinking, Superman notices that a, a rhino-type creature. So he flashes some simulated red sunlight into its eyes, causing it to charge and bust out a wall in Superman's cell, returning his power a little bit. As Superman is about to escape, Lobo asks Superman to cut him a break and free him. Superman tells Lobo that, hey, Lobo deserves what he gets. And Lobo gets sedated one more time, but not before he threatens to attack Earth again. Superman frees Lobo, having given Lobo, Lobo giving his word that he will leave Superman and Earth in peace. And Lobo returns to the robots, 
turns them onto each other, destroying them by hooking their pipes together and basically bursting their heads. And thanks Superman with a punch to the jaw. You don't want the main ma- thinking the main man's gotten sentimental. The Preserver's seahorse robots show up on the scene and blast Superman and Lobo as some of the other captured creatures chatter amongst themselves. The Man of Steel and the main man dodge the robots as their strength returns, and Superman is elected by Lobo to be a decoy to draw the robots' fire, as Lobo busts up the robots. The two escape into a simulated forest environment where Superman suggests completing the escape, but Lobo wants to bring some pain down on the Preserver, who overhears the conversation and opens up a pit into a quicksand area and a sandworm straight out of Beetlejuice. Superman saves Lobo, who tells Superman that he owes him, and immediately has to pay up when Superman is caught by the giant worm. Lobo literally rips the skin off of the worm and forces it back into the sand, which allows Superman and Lobo to fly out of the pit. The Preserver is about to chase after his escapees personally when Gnaw hails the ship, telling the Preserver that they have tracked Lobo to the ship and intend to take him and squeak with them. Which, Preserver says, come get him. Squeak is living in the lap of luxury in a cell, being catered to by, well, looks like the exact same robots that match Lobo's blue-skinned vixens, until Lobo finds his bounty and snags him. Lobo tells Superman that they are home free, and that is when the bounty hunters begin pursuing the pair through the simulated jungle. Nog gets a shot in on Lobo where he insults when he insults the main man's bike, causing Lobo to pop up and mouth back from cover. <laughs> and... Superman uses his x-ray vision to see that the bounty hunters are trying to surround them. But then he spots something else. He tells Lobo to make a run for the hangar, and then leads the bounty hunters to an enclave, where they reckon that Suhi is trying to free one of these great beasts and feed them to one of the Preserver's bloodthirsty animals. So they throw Superman in instead, and the bushes menacingly shape, and out pops an awkward-looking bird. Of course, the hunters are surprised, and Superman explains that this is a dodo from Earth. And the bounty hunters cringe when they realize that they have thrown Superman into a yellow sun environment, powering him up. Meanwhile, Lobo makes it to the hangar and is about to jump on his bike when the Preserver shows up, ordering Lobo back to his enclosure. Lobo balks at the Preserver, who then mutates from an egg-like creature into a red-skinned Jack Kirby monster with claws and fangs, and they begin to battle. And as this battle goes on, Superman shows up, but finds that the Mega Preserver is a force to be reckoned with, and even throws a ship into the red hide of the adversary. Lobo tells Squeak that he is about to witness Lobo's one good deed of the century, which is fulfilled when he opens the airlock, creating a vacuum in the hangar which sucks the Preserver out into space. And the day is saved by the main man. And then we actually get a transition where Lobo is now sitting in Emperor Spooge's palace, explaining that that was why he was late. He was captured by the Preserver. And as he tells him this, Squeak and the Bounty Hunters scrub the bulbous hide of the Emperor. Spooge asks about Superman, and Lobo explains that apparently he had a place picked out for all the creatures aboard the vessel. And the episode wraps up with Superman diving into a pool in the Arctic, which opens up to his Fortress of Solitude, where Superman has made a zoo for the creatures, including the Dodo. And Lobo wraps the episode by saying Superman must be a sucker for hard hard luck cases. So, that wraps up the two-parter, but it just isn't as exciting as the previous. I don't want to sound like I'm being down on it, but part of the fun is greatly reduced in the second part. 
And I don't want you to think I didn't like this episode, because that's not the case. It's still fun. But last episode set the bar so high that this one just didn't quite make it there. The Preserver doesn't necessarily make for a great enemy until the very last moment, which doesn't quite cut it. However, this episode does set up some really, really big things in the DC Animated Universe that won't come into fruition for years, and ironically not in this particular animated series. Look close. Starro appears in the zoo. And that's where I'll leave that until we end up covering those particular episodes of that particular show down the line. Overall, the episode was good, but not great. And we did get an origin tale of Superman's intergalactic zoo, which is a nice callback to the Silver Age. But it felt like the more humorous aspects and the action aspects that mixed so well in the previous episode didn't quite balance out. So I'm going to give this episode three S shields out of five. Okay, but not great. And with that, that wraps up another episode of Superman Forever Radio. I am Superman's pal, J. David Weeder. I will see you next time with episode 38. Until then, keep on fighting the never-ending battle. You can find Superman Forever Radio at supermanforever.com and on iTunes, where you can leave a review. Superman Forever Radio is a very proud member of the Superman Podcast Network, where you can find Superman podcasts from all eras of the Man of Steel, and it is located at supermanpodcastnetwork.com. And I'd love to hear your thoughts, and there are several ways to contact the show. Drop me an email. The address is mail at supermanforever.com, or follow the show on Twitter at twitter.com forward slash supermanforever. That is Superman, the number four, ever. Also, the show is on Facebook. Simply go to facebook.com forward slash Superman Forever Radio, and you can use the like button to follow that way. And finally, you can leave a voicemail for the show at 703-95-SUPER. Please keep the messages short and do not include personal information like phone numbers, etc., as these will be played on air. Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. Superman and all related characters, the distinctive likenesses thereof, and related elements are trademarks of DC Comics, a Warner Brothers Entertainment company. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not gain profit from the images or related properties belonging to DC Comics or Warner Brothers Entertainment.